If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. If you're a guest with us, uh, we generally go through books of the Bible on Sunday mornings. Uh, We've been in the Gospel according to Luke for some time. Last week, a friend of mine who pastors right outside of Boston preached. uh, He was in town from Psalm 91, and we were, I was, I hope you were too, greatly encouraged by the Word uh, last week. But we'll be back in Luke this morning, Luke chapter 5. Now, the longer I pastor, uh, the more I walk with Christians through the everyday challenges of life and those associated with being a Christian, the more I am convinced uh, that many of us wrestle with what it actually means to be a Christian. I'm afraid that there is a great misconception as to what it means to live on mission for Christ in our everyday lives. And in this misconception... I think that many feel that because they aren't necessarily doing what we might consider big things for God, then we aren't good Christians. Or I think there's a misconception where we have created different degrees of Christianity, uh, some of which might seem more important than others. We've categorized those who are called to vocational ministry or to the foreign mission field or teaching a Sunday school class or leading a Bible study as the serious Christians that really live out their Christian faith and then place this ordinary title, this ordinary Christian title on a lesser playing field where you don't necessarily have to be as serious about your faith as those serious Christians. However, most Christians aren't necessarily called to full-time vocational ministry. Most Christians aren't called to the foreign mission field. In fact, the majority of Christians are just regular, ordinary people with the desire to serve Christ along the way. They're ordinary people with ordinary jobs, with ordinary families living ordinary lives. Most Christians aren't great orators. They don't use many high and lofty words. They don't have a million followers on Twitter or a top ten podcast. They don't read great big theology books. Most Christians are plumbers. They're school teachers. They're customer service representatives, business owners, stay-at-home moms, construction workers, offshore hands, nurses, doctors, or they're retired. What does God have for ordinary people? the everyday Christian. Well, let me first say this. We must remove this misconception that there is some sort of ranking system among Christians. All Christians, whether vocational pastors, foreign missionaries or not, should be serious about their faith and characterized in the same ways, many of the same ways. And what should be encouraging for all of us this morning, and I hope that it is, is that God chose to call and God chose to utilize ordinary people in His grand story of redemption. Through Christ, God draws near to the normal people with normal lives, working normal jobs. He transforms them and then He commissions them to be a part of what He is doing on earth. And what I want us to see from this text this morning is that Christ called the plumber. Christ called the school teacher, the business owner, 
the stay-at-home mom, the construction worker, the offshore hand, the customer service representative, the nurse, the doctor, the retired, and everyone else in between to follow him above all else and join in his grand story of redemption. This morning, if you are in Christ, Jesus has invited you to be a part of what he is doing in this world and what a glorious calling this is for all of us. As we look at this text, I want us to see very clearly what it looks like and what it means to follow Jesus. I hope that we gain clarity from this passage as to what Christ has commissioned us and called us to do. And it is my desire that we look to Christ this morning and we see what it means to wholeheartedly follow Him, cherishing Him, and cherishing His calling on our lives above everything else. We do this not so that we can gain some sort of special standing with God, gain any notoriety among God or among men, or make ourselves or our lives better by any earthly standards. We do this because of who Christ is. And we must be willing to forsake all else and follow Christ because of who Christ is. Christ has called us to follow Him, and I pray that we, church, we all do this no matter what it may entail or no matter what we may have to give up. This morning I pray that the Lord gives us eyes to see, that He gives us ears to hear, and that we be blessed by the preaching of His Word. If you're able, would you stand as we read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The Word of God reads in the Gospel according to Luke. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let, your nets for a ke- let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, you've given us your holy word so that we can know you, we can know ourselves, we can know Christ as Lord. So God, may you give us eyes to see those very things this morning. Give us eyes to see the holiness of Christ, our own depravity, and His great 
grace in calling us, transforming us, and commissioning us to be a part of the greatest purpose in all of history, the purpose of redemption. So, Father, be glorified in your preaching as we look to Christ and we magnify his great name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we continue our journey through the gospel according to Luke, we are seeing the ministry of Jesus unfold. Today we see Jesus call his first disciples. Now, lest we be confused by the terminology employed as Jesus begins to call the twelve disciples to follow him, I want to be clear, lest we think this is a unique event that does not necessarily apply to us or pertain to us. We're told in Acts 11.26, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul... And when they had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Therefore, what I'm proposing this morning is that Christians are disciples and disciples are Christians. If you are a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a disciple of Christ. And so as I walk through this text, as we consider what the Lord would have for us this morning, what we see Jesus doing is calling the first disciples, and calling the first disciples directly applies to us when he calls out to us and when he invites us to follow him. And so what I want us to see very clearly this morning is this. The power of Christ transforms us to pursue Christ above all else, and commissions us to seek the same transformation in others. Let me say that again. The power of Christ transforms us to pursue Christ above all else and commissions us to seek the same transformation in others. I hope that as we walk through this passage that you evaluate your own life. And in doing so, that you consider your relationship with Christ and the life that He has called you to live and the mission that He has invited you to participate in. And my prayer is that we not only give Christ a portion of our lives, but that Christ encompasses every area of our lives as we follow the example of the first disciples, being willing to give up and leave everything in order to follow Jesus. For this is exactly what it means to confess Christ as Lord, to bow the knee to His Lordship, to be willing to give all up for the sake of following Him. We've been set apart by Christ, transformed by the power of Christ, which leads to a life fully committed to Christ and commissioned to seek this same transformation in others as fishers of men. Ordinary people set apart by an extraordinary God to take part in His glorious plan of redemption. And so I want to make some observations as we walk through this text that point your attention to the transforming work of Christ in ordinary people that are invited and commissioned to be a part of the work of Christ here on earth. Now I'm looking at this from the angle of what characterizes Christians. We're considering what it looks like to be a Christian. And so the observations I'm making inform us from this passage what it means to follow Christ. And so my first observation is this. Christians recognize their sinfulness in view of Christ's holiness. Christians recognize their sinfulness in view of Christ's holiness. Now let me set the stage 
for this encounter between Simon Peter and Jesus. This is Simon, he tells us in this passage, that we later know is Peter. And so he's known as Simon Peter, and then Peter, it's kind of a lot of name exchanges. I try, I'm going to go back and forth, I'm just going to tell you with these names. So that's who I'm talking about, Simon Peter. I may say Simon, I may say Peter, I may say Simon Peter, same person. All right, just track with me on that. So we see this encounter uh, with Jesus and Simon Peter. If you remember from the end of chapter 4, Jesus just announced that he was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. We see this in 42 through 44 of chapter 4. And the chapter leaves off by locating Christ preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And now, as chapter 5 opens up, it opens with a scene of people flocking to Jesus in order to, we're told in verse 1, hear the word of God. They are standing by the lake Gennesaret, and another name for Sea of Galilee, by the way. And there are two boats by the shore. And these two boats uh, are unoccupied. The fishermen, we are told, are off to the side washing their nets from a previous night's fishing expedition. And so Jesus pushes one of the boats just off the shore, sits down in the boat while the crowd lines the shoreline, and he begins to teach. And so following his daily lesson, whatever that may have been, Jesus turns his attention to Simon Peter. Now according to Luke, Simon Peter and Jesus already know each other. If you remember back to the previous chapter, Jesus entered the house of Simon's mother-in-law and he healed her. She had this fever that was plaguing her, this illness, and Jesus miraculously healed her from the fever that she was suffering from. And immediately, Simon Peter's mother-in-law gets up and begins to serve those that are in the house. And so Simon Peter, at the very least, at the very least, has a mental knowledge for what Jesus is seemingly capable of doing. He has some sort of understanding that this man, this Jesus, has some power because he saw it with his own eyes in the healing of his mother-in-law. And so now, Jesus looks at Simon Peter, and he begins to instruct him, Simon Peter being a fisherman, on how to fish. We're told this in verse 4. It says, When they had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. Now, to a degree, we can sense this frustration in Simon Peter's response to Jesus. Why? Well, Simon is not just a recreational fisherman. He's not a guy that's just going out on a Sunday afternoon to the local fishing hole to see if the fish are biting. All right, This is not him at all. He is a commercial fisherman. This is his livelihood. This is his learned skill. This is how he supports his family. Well, then who is Jesus? Well, Jesus isn't a fisherman by trade. We know that. Jesus is a carpenter, right? And so in a sense, it'd be like a banker showing up to the mechanic shop and trying to tell the mechanic how to change out the transmission in his car. Now, I get it. We got YouTube, and that banker may have watched it, and this, that, and the other, but just just think with me for a second. And so to a degree, Simon Peter may have been thinking, you stick with building tables and chairs, I'll stick with fishing, because it's what I know. It's what I've been doing. And so Simon had put in a long night of fruitless labor. It's like staying up all night at your job, working many hours and making no money, by the way, costing you money. 
before I came on staff here years ago, I worked in commission sales, and sometimes you would put in a 40-plus hour work week and make zero money. That's frustrating. Simon was probably a little tired, probably hangry, and a little frustrated. Yet, Simon nevertheless was willing to go against his professional judgment because he recognized that Jesus had some sort of special authority. He had seen it. In fact, we can learn much from Simon's reply to Jesus. If the Lord God omnipotent, the all-powerful God, commands you to do something, you do it. You don't do it arrogantly. You don't do it reluctantly, as if you're ready to say when you fail, I told you so. Simon's response is appropriate here. He says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And the result makes it abundantly clear that Jesus performed a great miracle. The catch was so great that the nets almost broke and the boats threatened to sink. I've said this many times. I am a, an avid avid, die-hard fan of the TV show The Deadliest Catch, all right? And I don't know why. Elizabeth makes fun of me. She's like, it's the same thing every episode. They do the same thing. They say the same thing. They have the same problems. It just pulls me in, right? And I imagine and envision this great catch that's coming in, and these boats are beginning to sink because the, the, the miracle is so great. And Jesus, as we see, Jesus is the maker and the Lord of those fish. He knows and can perform a miracle so great such as this. Jesus made this lake, and when Jesus told those men to put their nets in the water, the fish did the bidding of their master. While there was hesitancy on the part of Peter, there was none on the part of the fish. But what I want us to make significant note of is Simon Peter's response to this miracle. His response might be a bit puzzling to us. How could, how could Simon Peter have responded outside of the way he did respond? Well, he could have constructed an excellent business plan. Think about the financial prosperity all these fish would mean for Simon Peter. He could have said to Jesus, how about you come down here just once a week and we'll split the profits 50-50. Some of you, that was your first thought, right? Or while he, we may not have expected him to respond like that, we may have expected Simon Peter to respond with joyful gratitude and enthusiasm for this great miracle that would have brought him great financial prosperity. He could have said, thank you, Jesus, this is wonderful. Yet this is not how Simon Peter responded either, is it? Simon Peter fell on his knees and he begged Jesus to leave. Depart from me, he says. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why in the world would Simon Peter make such a request? When Jesus performed this miracle, Peter glimpsed the Lord's glory and holiness. Simon Peter was in the presence of the Holy One, and in the midst of this, he sees his own heart. Just as the demon recognized Jesus as the Holy One in the, of God in the synagogue, Simon instinctively recognizes Jesus as holy. 
If you remember, the demon felt threatened, and so did Simon. But whereas of the demon, Jesus represented the dangerous enemy. What Simon displays is the natural discomfort of an ordinary individual in the presence of a holy God. The natural discomfort of a sinner in the presence of a holy God. Nothing makes sinners more uncomfortable than being in the presence of a holy God. This is why so many unbelievers are hostile towards Christ. This is why our churches aren't filled. For this very reason, we are met in the presence of a holy God. We are met with the truth of who we are, dead in our trespasses and sins. And in the presence of a holy God, we are like Simon Peter. We are undone. Too many churches and too many Christians have lost their understanding of the holiness of God. But holiness is so central to biblical teaching, that it is said of God in Luke 149, which we saw several weeks ago, holy is His name. As R.C. Sproul stated in his monumental work, The Holiness of God, I am convinced that it, the holiness of God, is one of the most important ideas that a Christian can grapple with. It is basic to our whole understanding of God and of Christianity. We've lost the hallowedness of God. The first line of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is who God is. This is who Christ is. And when we see God, when we see Christ in His holiness, we become immediately aware of our sinfulness. Calvin wrote this, Man never attains to a true knowledge of himself until he has contemplated the face of God and come down after such a contemplation to look into himself. When we see Christ for who he is, the Holy One of God, our sinfulness is immediately put on clear display amidst Christ's holiness, much like Isaiah's response in Isaiah chapter 6 is the same response Peter gives right here. In coming face to face with the reality that he is in the presence of the Son of God in human flesh, Simon Peter is undone by his sinfulness, like Adam and Eve hiding from God after their rebellion in Genesis 3.8, or the Israelites trembling at the appearance of the Lord on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19.16. A sinful man like Peter cannot stand to be in the presence of God, and he demands that Jesus leave. Christians are those who receive eyes to see, to know, and experience the Holy One of God, Jesus Christ. We may not have gazed upon Christ physically, face to face like Simon Peter, but the Holy Spirit has opened our spiritual eyes to see the holiness of Christ. And in light of His holiness, we are undone by our sinfulness and our lack of holiness. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means recognizing our own sinfulness in view of Christ's holiness. I'll ask you, when was the last time you contemplated God's holiness? When was the last time you contemplated His name, holy? God's holiness. That is His perfection, His might. His being set apart, His glory and His greatness. Maybe this morning you need the Spirit to give you a fresh glimpse of Christ's holiness. Second observation. 
Christians are transformed by Christ and fully commit themselves to following Him. Christians are transformed by Christ and commit themselves to, and fully commit themselves to following Him. Look how Peter at the response at verses nine through eleven. Peter says, "Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. So hold on to this thought that Christians are those who see their own sinfulness in light of Christ's holiness, in view of Christ's holiness. And now see what happens next in this account. Jesus in His holiness, as Simon Peter begs Jesus to leave, tells Him to depart from Him, Jesus in His holiness does not look at Simon Peter's request and say, yes, I must go. I must leave. I must depart because I am holy and you are not. I must depart for I cannot look upon you and your sin and your disgust. Jesus also does not say, yes, Simon Peter, I am holy And you are right to see yourself as a rotten sinner because I know you've done this, this, and this. He also doesn't argue with Simon Peter's statement of his own sinfulness. He doesn't say, Simon Peter, don't talk that way. You need to believe in yourself and have confidence in your abilities. He doesn't say any of those things. Yes, Jesus is the Holy One of God, the Son of God, perfectly righteous and holy, yet... This is, this is amazing. Yet, in His holiness, He does not cast Simon Peter away because of Simon Peter's sinfulness. What does He do? Jesus draws near to Simon Peter. Jesus tells Simon Peter to rise, to receive grace, and to follow Him. Uniquely, Jesus' holiness is a holiness that comes to sinners, that comes to those who are sinful. Rather than removing Himself from this situation, Jesus looks at Simon and He says, Join me. So many people run from Christ because when they encounter His holiness, they will be overcome with guilt and condemnation, thinking Jesus is there just to cast them away and to condemn them. But right now, Jesus is there to receive them, to draw near to them, to save them, and to give them hope. Jesus, in His holiness, took on flesh to draw near to sinners like Simon Peter, to sinners like you, to sinners like me. Yes, the holiness of Christ exposes our sin. Yes, it brings us to our knees in conviction, which is a great thing. Yet, as with Simon Peter, instead of being met with condemnation, Jesus invites him to follow him, to join in his mission. We must share this hope with people who think the opposite. Peter needed a Savior more than anything, and Jesus drew near to him as such. Peter's disposition is right when we encounter a holy God, but in His grace, Christ receives us anyways. This is transformation. 
Jesus transformed the heart of Simon Peter in this moment, despite Simon Peter's own sinfulness. Jesus didn't say to him, clean yourself up and follow me. He didn't say, fix this part of your life and follow me. Simon Peter looked at holiness in the face. And Jesus said, come as you are and follow me. As sinners flee from the holiness of God, those transformed by Christ run toward the holiness of God. We see on clear display the Holy Spirit's work of transformation in the life of Simon Peter, and this is absolutely amazing. Through salvation, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are transformed through the redeeming work of Christ in our lives to be like Christ. The holiness of God is no longer something we flee from, but something we draw near to and that draws near to us. The holiness of God is something we pursue, something we long to see, something we long to experience. We cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as we do, Jesus meets us in His grace. Why? Well, I've said this multiple times already in our time in Luke, but what is true of Christ is true of us. Christ is holy, therefore through redemption, by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, He makes us holy. Transform. Our sin no longer separates us from God. But God in His grace draws near to us despite our sin through the person of Jesus Christ. Christ was sent by God to accomplish the redemption of God's people. Christ, the Holy One of God, went to the cross, paid the penalty for our sin in our place. He rose on the third day from the dead, defeating sin and death once for all. And now, as the Spirit of God opens our eyes to the holiness of Christ, prompting us to fall on our knees in agony and in recognition of our own sinfulness, Jesus draws near to us. And Jesus says to us, Come to Me. You are forgiven. I have made you holy. We've been transformed by the power of Christ. Church, we need a fresh glimpse of this this morning. We need a fresh glimpse of this each and every day. Our eyes open. How do you know transformation has taken place? You're willing to leave everything and follow Christ. Look at what Peter James and John do. They leave everything and follow Jesus. This big catch that they just had, they came to shore, left it. Left it all. Left their equipment, left their nets, left their livelihood, walked away from it and followed Christ. What do ordinary Christians look like? They look like transformed people who are willing to walk away from everything to follow Christ. They are willing to sacrifice for the sake of Christ. Now hear this. God may not call you to leave everything behind and go to the foreign mission field. He may not call you to leave all of your livelihood, your equipment, your home, your cars, your whatever else. He may not call you to do that, to go serve in a remote part of the world. He might, and praise the Lord when He does. He may not call you to sell all of your 
possessions, but He does call you to go against the grain of culture. He does call you to be willing to do those things. He calls you to be in the world, but not of the world. He does call you to forsake a love of fame, a love of glory, a love of riches, and a love of power. In practical terms, He may call you to give up a job promotion that may cause you to bend on some biblical convictions. Parents, He may call you to forsake travel ball or an event for your kids that they want to go to because it compromises His command to regularly gather with God's people. Or it may compromise their own spiritual development. He may call you not to give them an iPhone when they're seven years old, which is against our culture. Or to give them access to a world full of debauchery way too early. He may call you to utilize your finances in a way that glorifies Him and may make you a bit uncomfortable. He may call you to forgo some friendships that create sin in your life. He may call you to give up some comforts for the purpose of following Him. Peter, James, and John were willing to forego fame, glory, riches, and power because they realized that nothing could compare with this one who had just performed this miracle before their eyes. Christians, those transformed by Christ, are willing to forego a number of things. Willing to leave everything behind to follow Christ because they have been transformed and they realize that nothing can compare with this pearl of great price. This is what happens at conversion when you are transformed and your life is turned around by God the Holy Spirit. You surrender all of your rights to Christ and you say, all that I am and all that I have is yours. This is not just what radical Christians do. The serious ones. This is what ordinary Christians do. It will warrant strange looks, from those around you, from culture. It may warrant criticism. But it is what Christ calls Christians to do. And if you're not willing to leave it all for the sake of Christ, then your allegiance lies with something else before Christ, and Christ will not share first place in our lives with anything else. Ordinary Christians, you and I, forsake it all for the cause of Christ because Christ is worthy. Our church is willing to forsake it all for the person of Jesus Christ because Christ is worthy. It is just as radical when a church starts considering what the Scriptures say and taking serious Christ's call on us. But we're willing to do that no matter the cost. Christians declare that loyalty to Jesus takes priority over all other claims and concerns. How do we know Simon, Peter, James, and John were transformed by the Spirit of God? They put their faith into action. Faith without works is dead, James says. We, we know that very clearly. Our claim that Christ has transformed us and that we are willing to follow Him no matter the cost is demonstrated in our actions. How is Christ this morning calling you to forsake everything and follow Him? Are you committing yourself to Christ in all things? Is Christ the center of who you are and what you do? Once you hear the Holy One say to you, your sins are forgiven, come and follow me, then the Spirit of God changes that rock that's in your chest that you call a heart. And it causes it to beat anew under the Spirit's direction. 
then all you want to do is get as close as you possibly can to Jesus and follow Him the rest of your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. Third observation. Christians are invited and commissioned to be a part of Christ's work on earth. Peter, James, and John seemingly transform, and Jesus says, Come and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. You'll be catching men. Now, we would be remiss if we move past the purpose of this calling of the first disciples. Yes, through the Spirit, we're transformed into a new creation that lives and breathes for Christ. Yes, as Christians, we're willing to follow Christ no matter the cost, but the task before us is not purposeless. Here is a holiness that not only calls the sinner, but commissions the sinner to become fishers of men. As Christians, we're invited and commissioned to be a part of something that is much more important than anything else in this world. That is the mission of Christ. As Christians, we are given a new purpose in life. Jesus tells these fishermen that from now on, you'll be fishing for people. Isn't that a strange concept? If you've been fishing, it's not always the most glorious thing for the fish, is it? Nor is it that glorious for the fishermen if you're sitting out there not catching anything. And the sense of the phrase is that Peter and his companions will be engaged in rescuing people from spiritual danger. In other words, I don't need you to catch them. I can catch them without you if that's what my father wants. He can do whatever he pleases in order to rescue people from destruction, but he has chosen the foolishness of preaching as the means to save the world, and I'm choosing the foolishness of you disciples to bring my people into the fold. Christ invites ordinary people and commissions ordinary people to be set apart for His work on earth. You may not be a pastor. You may not be a foreign missionary. You may not be a Bible translator. You may not read theology books. You may not do anything, quote-unquote, great in the world's eyes when it comes to the things of the Lord. But the King of kings and the Lord of lords has invited you and commissioned you to be fishers of men. He has invited you to be a part of His plan of redemption, to share the good news with those around you, to the disciples, that, to be disciples that make disciples. And it's a high calling. Christian. Ordinary Christian. This is God's call on your life. You live for Christ above all else, and you participate in the mission of Christ in leading others to live transformed lives. I want you to notice the word picture used by Jesus here. And I know, man, I am, I, am, I am ticking on time here, and I apologize for that. I'm not done yet, by the way. I've got some more. So I'm starting to talk a little faster, right? I want you to notice the word picture used by Jesus here because it's inverted. The Greek verb used here for to fish more literally means to capture alive. What do fishermen do? A fisherman captures a fish while they're living, but then he brings them to their death right? Yet, while fishermen snatch living fish away to their death, Peter and the other disciples will be engaged in snatching spiritually dying people away to life. God uses ordinary Christians for extraordinary purposes, bringing people from death to life. The power of Christ transforms us to pursue Christ above all else and commissions us to seek the same transformation in others. I want you to hear this story, and then I'll wrap it up. Many of you are familiar with Charles Spurgeon, the great English Baptist preacher of the 1800s, still considered today the prince of preachers. Spurgeon's influence, his sermons and writings continue to resonate through the corridors of history, and we'll 
really go on until the Lord Jesus returns. Many of you are also familiar with this story of redemption. On January 6, 1850, the 15-year-old Spurgeon was walking to church in the midst of a terrible blizzard that hindered him from making it to the church he was seeking to attend. And as the blizzard prevented him from going any further, he turned the corner and made his way into a small primitive Methodist church. Recounting the story, Spurgeon wrote this, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. Snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort went into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Then after providing a further summary of what the preacher said that day, Spurgeon concluded with these remarks. Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun and I could, have given, I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. Here's what I want you to notice from that story. Did you notice who it was who called Spurgeon to repent and believe in Christ? It wasn't the pastor, for he was apparently snowed in. He was a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor or something of that sort that stood in the gap. An ordinary person set apart by an extraordinary God to take part in His glorious plan of redemption. The power of Christ transforms us to pursue Christ above all else and commissions us to seek the same transformation in others. Simon Peter and us are totally unworthy of being Jesus' disciple, which makes us perfectly suitable to be used by God. Jesus takes imperfect instruments and uses them to accomplish His purpose. Peter is not ready or able to follow Jesus wholly until he experiences Jesus' power and majesty and holiness, leading him to recognize his own sinfulness. Then Jesus can take him transform him, and teach him to fish for people. Church, in what ways might God be calling you to leave everything and follow him? I mentioned a few of them earlier, but there are so many more the Spirit may be laying on your heart this morning. Maybe this morning you would say you've never turned from your sin and received Christ in salvation, and I invite you to find me or someone else so that we can talk through that with you following our time this morning. Maybe God's calling you to set aside some earthly pleasure, some earthly comfort for the purpose of following Him. Maybe He's calling you to forego an extracurricular activity or something that conflicts with His desire for you to be a functioning member of a local faith family. Maybe He's calling you to take seriously your call to be fishers of men. Being a Christian means all of these things. 
It means seeing your sin in light of Christ's holiness. It means being transformed by the Spirit of God and living for Christ above all else. And it means being invited and commissioned to be a part of Christ's work on earth. How amazing is it that Jesus, the Holy Son of God, would use sinful people like Simon Peter and us to help accomplish His saving work in the world. Being a Christian means having a life that is transformed, and a life that is commissioned. Pray with me.